uh, <coughs> evening LSE lecture. Uh, I'm Nick Timmins, I'm from the Financial Times, it's my pleasure and privilege to chair this. Um, the title of the lecture is Reforming Pensions in Europe, and it is in effect a sort of soft, low-key launch for this book called Reforming Pensions by Nick Barr and by Peter Diamond, who's the Professor of Economics at, the LS, at, at uh, MIT. It's had the sort of pre-publication reviews you'd like to die for. You know, a wonderful book, destined to be the standard reference on the subject. Two of the finest minds in economics lucidly explain the theory and practice of pensions, it says, and while difficult, good reforms do appear to be possible. We're lucky not only to have uh, Nick delivering the lecture, but we're also promised that Lord Turner, Adair Turner, uh, he once of the Pensions Commission and now trying to put the entire financial system to rights, he's going to come and respond, we are told he is on his way despite today's events and losing a deputy chairman and other unhappinesses in his current life. So he should be here later and we look forward to hearing him too. Uh, Nick barely needs a word of introduction to this audience, I don't think. I mean, he's Professor of Public Economics here. Uh, he's done a lot of highly influential academic work, not just on pensions reform, but on higher education finance, where he's actually directly influenced policy as well as influenced the academic debate. Like everything else today, uh, in finance, uh, pensions feel as though they are in a crisis. <clears throat> uh, happily and uh, arguably from a rather longer-term perspective than that, and our current troubles, I think Nick is going to argue that there isn't a crisis, there's just a problem, and that it's soluble. Yep. Nick, if you go. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. It's a, a pleasure to be here. I will try and control both the lighting and the PowerPoint simultaneously without falling off the stage. Um, thank you, Nick, for that introduction. Thank you for chairing. Uh, I'd like to put publicly on record my thanks to Adair Turner for turning up, as I am assured he will, on what is a, a very difficult day for him. In some ways, um, my brief is to talk for about 45 to 50 minutes. Uh, another definition is that I am to talk until a dare turns up. <laughs> what I want to do is to talk briefly about some, the backdrop to all this. Then say, what are the problems that policymakers in Europe and elsewhere face over pensions? Then discuss what sort of pensions architecture would make sense in Europe. Then briefly talk a bit about the rest of the world. As Nick has said, this lecture draws heavily on my book with Peter Diamond. Um, it's wonderful working with one of the world's truly great theorists and also one of the world's nicest people. The, the origins of the book were that he and I were members of a small group that also included Jim Merleys and one of whose advisors was Nick Stern, uh, where asked to write a report advising the government of China on pension reform in 2004. And after we'd made our pitch to the Chinese Premier, Peter and I were sitting on, a, uh, standing on the platform at the Beijing Metro, and we thought there was a lot of stuff we'd written that we hadn't used, and we should turn it into a quick, short book. And we failed on both counts. Uh, the book came out 
four years later. It is a long book. It is so long that later this year, OUP are going to publish a shorter version. And what I want to do is to start off talking about some of the book's key messages, some of which people know, some of which are surprising. Message one, it ain't the baby boom. The main cause of the pensions crisis, in quotes, is a failure to adapt to three well-known and very long-run trends. One, rising life expectancy. Two, declining fertility. And three, a long-term trend to earlier retirement. Those are the ones that really matter. There are two more recent phenomena, the baby boom and the fact that pension systems have got larger uh, since the Second World War. It is widely thought that the problem is the baby boom, and it's not. There would be a problem of paying for pensions because of the longer-term trends, and that would be true even if there hadn't been a baby boom. And to illustrate that, these rather small age pyramids, they show projected age pyramids for China, India, and the United States for 2050. The US had a baby boom. China had a one-child and has a one-child policy. India has none. So three very different countries. They all three have age pyramids for 2050 that look remarkably similar. So that's the first message. It ain't the baby boom. The second message, which Nick has already alluded to, is it ain't a crisis. There isn't an ageing problem, and there isn't a pensions crisis. Normally I say to my students that they have complete academic freedom, they have as much academic freedom as I do. Uh, the one exception is I tell them, use the term ageing problem in your exam and you will fail. <laughs> there isn't an ageing problem. People are living longer. In many ways it's the great untold uh, good news story. It's not a problem, it's a triumph. The problem is not that people are living too long, it's that they're retiring too soon. And UK data illustrate this very clearly. The British man who retired in 1950 had left school at age 14, had then had retired at the then average retirement age of 67, having contributed for 53 years. And at the age of 67, uh, a British man in 1950, if he made it to 67, had about 11 years of retirement. His grandson, who retired in 2004, had had somewhat longer in education, retired somewhat earlier at 63, having contributed for 48 years, and because of rising life expectancy and earlier retirement, had 20 years of retirement. So the older guy contributed for about five years for every year of retirement, the younger guy about half that. Message three. Private pensions are not a panacea. Funded pensions, you build up a fund. You accumulate a fund over a period of years, and that's what pays for people's pensions. With pay-as-you-go pensions, there isn't a fund. Contributions from this year's workers pay the pensions of this year's uh, retirees. <coughs> the World Bank has advocated funded private pensions fairly strongly, arguing that they promote growth through higher savings, they increase coverage 
of the pension system through their incentive effects, and they improve old age security. Now, those arguments are not always wrong, but they're by no means not always right. They can be true, but not always unnecessarily. And a lot of the World Bank's arguments have significant analytical flaws that I'm not going to go through the theory of in this lecture because that's not the topic, but there are economic analytics that show the flaws in the World Bank's argument. <coughs> Message four, pension systems have multiple objectives and good policy needs to take account of all of them. Poverty relief is one. A second, a different one, is consumption smoothing. That is redistribution from you in your younger years to yourself when you retire. A third objective is insurance. A fourth objective uh, is redistribution, also known as social solidarity. Now, it's a mistake to get obsessed about one objective and forget about the others. Good policy design needs to take all of them into account. So that's one implication of this slide. A second one is the fifth and final general <coughs> message of the book that I want to talk about. And that is, one size does not fit all. There is no single best pension system. And it's very easy to show why that's the case. Um, objectives, as we've seen, include consumption smoothing, insurance, poverty relief, and redistribution. Constraints facing policymakers in different countries, different fiscal capacity, different institutional capacity and administrative capacity, Behavioural parameters can have different values. Labour supply may be more sensitive to tax changes in some countries than others. Saving may be more or less sensitive to interest rates in some countries than others. The shape of the income distribution varies. The reason there's no simple, single best system is very simple. One, policymakers attach different weights to the different objectives. Some may give more weight to poverty relief, some more to um, consumption smoothing. Secondly, not only do the weights attract, attached to objectives differ, but the pattern of constraints differs. So if you've got different objectives and different constraints at different countries in different times, it follows that the optimal outcome will be different. And that's why pension systems differ across countries and over time. And the fact that pension systems are different is as it should be. So that's an economic argument about optimization. But recently I came across a beautiful political argument that explains the issue of optimization, trade-offs, and no perfect solution. And you probably can't read this, so I shall read it. Designing a White House staff... <coughs> Like designing an aircraft involves trade-offs. If you want speed of decision, you must narrow the number of those involved in the decision, thus sacrificing breadth of information and depth of debate. If you demand single-minded devotion to yourself, you will probably choose people who lack other career options, which is to say people who are less than supremely able. If you want to recruit the best and the brightest, you will have little choice but to end up with people of strong wills, big egos, and intense principles who may put their beliefs before your interests. The problem of designing an effective political organization cannot be solved. It can only be finessed. And that's 
Exactly the case with pensions. Multiple objectives, different constraints, no single perfect solution. So those, that's by way of background, sort of some of the key messages of the book. Let me now come on to problems. Problems in Europe. What are the problems? There are two major ones. One of them is, how do we pay for pensions? The other is, how do you make pensions portable across the EU? Problem one, public pension spending. I invite you to look at the fourth line for Greece, which in 2000 spent 12.5% of GDP on pensions, projected to rise to 20% by 2030, and if nothing is done, to uh, 25% of GDP by 2050. So what you've got are systems that have made people generous promises, which, as people live longer and longer in retirement, become more and more expensive if nothing is done. So the obvious question is, what do you do about it? And what you do about it is one of the following. These are the only solutions. There are no others. Either you pay lower pensions, and you can do that in two ways. You can pay people lower weekly or monthly pensions, or you can require later retirement of the same pension. So people don't get a higher pension. They get the same pension, but they get it later. So you reduce pensions not by cutting living standards in retirement, but by reducing the duration of retirement. That's one solution. The other is to have higher contributions. And the third is policies to increase national output. And you can use any mix of these. Policies to increase national output, very simple-minded. Either you make each individual worker more productive, or you increase the number of workers you get from each age cohort. You can make each worker more productive through higher saving, leading to more and better physical capital. And or you can have higher investment in human capital, including that of older workers, thus making workers more productive. You can increase the number of workers by raising labour force participation at all age groups. As a special case of that, you can raise the labour force participation of older workers by raising retirement. Or you can import labour. You can import labour directly through more immigration. Or you can import labour indirectly by exporting capital to countries with younger populations. So that's the problem. European countries are spending more than most of them will be able to afford if nothing is done. The solutions are those listed on the previous slide, including, importantly, the policies to increase output. So that's one problem. The other problem is making pensions portable across the EU. Now, national systems differ in all sorts of ways. Um, some are contributory, like the United Kingdom. Some are non-contributory, like the Netherlands. I shall come on to that later. Um, they differ in terms of the number of years of contributions, different pension formulae, differences in the role of private pensions. Now, the problem is that if you're not careful, workers who move cross-country may end up with little pension. I have a colleague in the European Institute 
and what I'm going to say isn't literally true, but he's something of a metaphor. Uh, he's a good European. He speaks about six European languages fluently. He has taught at universities in at least four European countries. And if we get this wrong, he'll end up without a state pension in any country because he hasn't worked in any of them long enough. So there is a problem about people moving uh, across country, and that problem can uh, create impediments to labour mobility. So you then come up with a so what question, why does labour mobility matter? And it matters for two reasons. First of all, it matters for reasons of efficiency in a modern labour market, and secondly, uh, mobility is an important element in human rights. So portability is important, and at the moment, with widely different systems, portability is very limited indeed. It's a non-trivial problem. So, given those problems, what should policymakers in the wider Europe be thinking about? Now, I've said that there is no single best pension system, but I'm going to look at four policy directions that I think uh, ought to have resonances for European policymakers. Uh, avoiding elderly poverty, redefining retirement, consumption smoothing, looking at important lessons from the United States, and on consumption smoothing again, a different set of lessons from Sweden. So let me start off with um, policies to uh, avoiding elderly poverty. Policy one for European policymakers, think seriously about non-contributory basic pensions, defined as a public pension paid at a flat rate out of taxation on the basis of residence rather than contributions. It's sometimes called a citizen's pension. So the idea is, if you live in a country, you get a tax-financed basic pension because you live in the country, not on the basis of a contributions record. Now, why do I think that's a good idea? The contributory principle assumed... 1948 beverage assumed that workers with a long assumed that workers had long stable employment records therefore the coverage of the newly introduced contributory system would grow great model but history hasn't sustained that argument and it's pretty easy to see why if you look at the world that beverage assumed in the 1940s five assumptions Independent nation-states, employment was generally full-time and long-term. Men, I mean men, usually had a full-time job and they usually had it for pretty much all their working life. There was limited international mobility. There was a stable nuclear family with male breadwinner and female caregiver. And once you'd acquired your skills, when you were young, they lasted for a lifetime. Now, those assumptions weren't completely true even in the 1940s, but they were true enough to make the basis of good policy. What's happened? Well, all of those assumptions have been invalidated, but let me just look at some of them. First of all, people do not necessarily always have full-time work for the whole of their careers. There's more fluid labour markets, greater varieties of labour market attachment. So you can't assume that people have permanent full-time work. You have rising international mobility, particularly in the EU, and you have 
but changing nature of the family. You have more fluid family structures. You have rising labour market activity by women. The point about the old assumptions were if a man had a job all his life and a man and a woman got married and stayed married, you could base a pension on the man's contributions because he'd have a complete record and you could cover his wife through the husband's contributions. If men no longer have necessarily permanent full-time work, their contributions records will start to get patchy. If family structures are more fluid and women work more and attitudes about gender have changed, then you can't base a woman's pension on her husband's contributions anymore. Women need pensions in their own right. So the argument that underpinned contributory basic pensions has in many ways become invalidated. So what are the arg- so that's a negative argument. What are the positive arguments for a non-contributory basic pension? Well, they strengthen poverty relief in terms of coverage. There won't be any gaps. If everyone in Britain is eligible for a basic state pension on the basis of eligibility, you don't get gaps. Adequacy, if the pension is paid as beverage urged not below the poverty line, you've strengthened poverty relief. And there is an enormous gain in terms of gender balance as well. I shall come on in a minute to make the point that women's contributory records are much poorer than men's. So... Strength and poverty relief is one. There are better incentives to work with a flat-rate tax-financed pension than you would get if you had income-tested poverty relief. If you say to somebody, we will pay you a pension credit, but only if you're poor, and if you earn any extra income, we will withdraw quite a good chunk of the pension credit, you significantly reduce the payoff for older people to do some paid work. Basic state pension uh, avoids the worst of those problems. They provide good targeting. There is a view that says if a benefit isn't income tested, it's badly targeted. The counter-argument is that that um, you can target benefits on characteristics that are highly correlated with poverty, and age is one of those. So you can argue the benefit's well targeted. And finally, if you've got basic pensions... A day I welcome, I'm doing Congratulations. Glad you made it. If you have basic pensions across all the European countries, then someone who moves around can get a pro-rata pension based on the countries in which he or she has lived. You can't say you get the pension based on your last country or everyone will emigrate in their last year to the country in Europe with the highest pension, or at least will pretend to emigrate. But prorating a a non-contributory benefit is very feasible. The trouble is, when social policy people like me say, have a tax-financed pension for everybody, ministries of finance start to go pale. How can you afford this? And the answer is, you can match your expenditure to budgetary constraints through three instruments. One is the size of the pension. How big a non-contributory pension do you pay? Secondly, 
at what age do you pay the pension? If you want to pay a non-contributory pension not below the poverty line, but you can't afford to do it at age 60 or age 65, then, at least initially, you might want to do it at age 70. And finally, you can have what I call an affluence test. In other words, you don't pay the pension to everybody. You claw it back from only the best off. So in Canada, for example, they have a universal pension, but the richest 2% of Canadians get none at all, and sliding down from that, possibly the top third of income earners don't get the whole pension. So an affluence test, an, an income test, keeps benefits in the hands of the poor. An affluence test simply screens out the best off. So there are ways that you can make uh, a universal pension affordable. Whoops. Country examples. Well, the UK illustrates the problems of contributory pensions. Um, there's people in the audience who know the numbers better than I do, but something like 85% of British men are eligible for a full basic state pension that requires 44 years of contributions, but only something like 30 to 35% of women. Now, this is not because we can't collect contributions. It's not a problem of institutional capacity. It's the fact that the contributory model doesn't fit today's labour market and today's family structure. And for that reason, the government has reduced the contribution requirements, which is a partial move towards a non-contributory basic pension. OECD countries that have non-contributory basic pensions, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Canada, I've already mentioned, has an affluence test. Australia, similarly, uh, tax-financed universal pension, but with an affluence test. Other countries, Chile has just introduced a non-contributory pension <coughs> last year, and South Africa has something similar. So that's policy direction one for European policymakers. Policy direction two, redefining retirement. So the policy for policymakers to think about is later and more flexible retirement. <clears throat> Why? Very simple-minded argument. Longer healthy life plus constant or a constant or declining retirement age creates problems of pension finance. So the solution, it seems to me, is blindingly obvious. Pensionable age should rise in some rational way as life expectancy increases. You are given the consulting job of designing a pension system for a brand new planet. Would you ever... And, 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 you, in, in, and you're told that the native life form is living longer and longer. Would you ever in your tiny mind say, retirement age is 65 and will stay 65 forever? Of course not. You would say, retirement age needs to bear some rational uh, relationship to life expectancy. And if you do that, you can say, as the UK Pensions Commission did, indeed, I can remember Adair Turner on the day the report was published, saying on television that people can retire later, as the Pension Commission recommended, but still have a longer retirement period than their parents. And the slide I showed earlier of contribution years and retirement years shows the point that you can raise retirement age but still give people longer retirements than their parents. And all this is all the more plausible 
because most work is less physically demanding than in the past. So part of that policy package is the average age of retirement should go up. But a second and important part of the package is not only later retirement, but more flexible retirement. And to see that, you need to look briefly at the history of pensions and why they were invented. I'm not a social historian. This will probably make social historians in the audience wince. But my take on it is the following. When pensions were introduced in the 19th century, in the case of New Zealand in 1898, with a retirement age of 65, someone aged 65 in 1898 was finished. They were old, they were doddering, and they would dodd around the factory yard, uh, the factory floor and the farmyard, lowering the productivity of younger workers. So the purpose of pensions was to say, you're old, you're finished, get out of here. So it was mandatory and it was total. Now think about today. If I am told that people aged 65 are finished, I take a very dim view of such a statement. People aged 65 often have a great deal of get up and go. So that's one change compared to the 19th century. The other big change is we've got richer. So we can afford to give people a period of leisure at the end of their working life. But that being the case, the purpose of retirement has changed. It's no longer get the old and the doddering off the factory floor. It's give people some leisure at the end of 40-plus years of work. And that being the case, uh, giving them increased choice about when to retire and whether fully or partially is desirable. It's desirable for two reasons. One, if you can keep more older workers in the labour force... That promotes output growth, which we've seen is one of the solutions to paying for pensions. But it's also, as a response to individual preferences, desirable for its own sake. In other words, even if there weren't a problem of paying for pensions, I would still be advocating more flexible uh, arrangements for retirement as being welfare-enhancing for the individual. Now, there's a problem about later retirement and more flexible retirement. And that is, European legislation says age discrimination is wicked. And there is a tendency when older workers can't get jobs to say, it's wicked employers, it's age discrimination. And to try to beat employers up for being discriminatory. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't age discrimination, But the question I asked when I was on a a working group looking at this was to say, supposing I'm an employer that is very well disposed towards older workers, I love them to bits, I would love to employ them, what are the reasons why I might face problems? And there are several. One of them is, the moment you have a fixed cost of employment, medical insurance in the United States being the big example, if you've got fixed costs of employment then your incentive is to employ as few workers as possible and make them work as many hours of overtime as possible. Any fixed cost of employment militates against part-time work. So that's one issue that needs to be addressed. Another is legal rigidities. If it's, not, if it's illegal to lower pay as a worker downshifts, then downshifting becomes difficult. 
Uh, contractual issues, what I call the hassle factor. If legislation isn't very clear about the terms on which a firm can allow a worker to go part-time, then the contract has to be negotiated individually, and that takes time and trouble, and they may get it wrong, and there's potential legal costs, and there's potential for litigation. And finally, there's insurance issues. Supposing it's the case that a firm has medical and travel insurance for its workers, and that policy covers workers until ret normal retirement age of 65, then all of a sudden, if my employer wants to keep me on post-65, is suddenly told that it's going to cost them an extra £3,000 a year to get me health and travel insurance, there is a cost. So it's not just nasty employers and age discrimination. There are a series of policy impediments, and one needs policy to address them. So, country examples. United States is in the process of raising the age for full pension from 65 to 67. UK state pensionable age of 65 for men and being phased in for women will rise to 66 in 2024 and thereafter by one year each decade. Norway, the retirement age is already 67. The big change over the past two or three years is that retirement age has become a proper topic for polite society. And this is a great tribute to the Pensions Commission. Before the Pensions Commission, journalists would ring me up and say, Professor Barr, we want to talk to you about the pensions crisis. And I'd say, there isn't a crisis. There's a problem. But there's a perfectly good solution. People are living longer. They need to work longer. And the journalists would end the conversation as soon as they politely could. You know, clearly, I was some wacko academic that had no concept of political realities. Pensions Commission, with their first report, raised it as an option. And all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, because of a lot of work, it became something that people saw the logic of and could talk about. So that's the second strategic policy direction for European policymakers, later retirement, more flexible retirement. Let me now come on to consumption smoothing. Sometimes countries give lessons to other countries on how not to do things. US health finance, alas, is a lesson to us all how not to do it. The US has something called the Thrift Savings Plan, which I think is a very good lesson for other countries, and it's one that underpins some of the recommendations of the Pensions Commission. So let me explain how this, where the idea comes from. It's based on lessons from the economics of information and from behavioral economics. Lessons from information economics. Economists love the model of the well-informed consumer, perfect competition, no frictions, etc., and it's a model that works pretty well in a great many circumstances. But in the context of a lot of areas of social policy, it doesn't. In the context of pensions, a survey found that 50% of Americans didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. Now, when I teach, I say to my students, put up your hand if you are really, absolutely sure you know the difference. 
and you sort of see hands sort of, sort of go up a bit timidly. Now, if you don't know something as basic as that, then you really are not in a position to make decisions about uh, private pensions. Second point, most people don't understand the need to shift from equities to bonds as they age if they hold an individual account. One of the saddest things I heard on a BBC News bulletin um, last autumn, it was an elderly car worker in Detroit saying he'd lost 37% of his pension savings over the previous two weeks. And my reaction was one of, of anger at any system that could allow an elderly worker still to be in the stock market that close to retirement, rather than having shifted uh, into bonds progressively as he got older. A third area of poor information is that virtually nobody realises the significance of administrative charges for pensions. If any of you have an individual pension, look at the administrative charges. If your pension provider charges you 1% of your accumulation per year, over a full working life, that's going to cost you 20% of your accumulation, hence 20% of your pension. If you then observe that in a country like Hungary, average administrative costs are 3%, and you see that if you're not careful, individual private pensions can become a device for moving money from the pocket of the worker to the pocket of the fund manager, which is a great objective if you're a fund manager, but it ain't mine. So, issue one, most people are not well informed about what they need to know for pensions. Lessons from behavioural economics. Now, conventional theory predicts that I save voluntarily to keep my lifetime indifference curve tangent to my lifetime budget constraint. So I save voluntarily for consumption smoothing and I voluntarily buy an annuity to buy insurance against uh, the longevity risk. So that's what theory predicts. What happens? We know what happens. Procrastination. People delay saving, don't save at all, or don't save enough. We observe inertia. People stay where they are. They don't move. How many of you have moved to a cheaper telephone company? How many of you even moved to a bank account with a higher interest rate? People don't. In theory, it should make no difference whether a person opts into a pension system or whether they're automatically enrolled and has to do paperwork to opt out. But in practice, what we observe is any system where people are automatically opted in has a much higher take-up than one where they have to take positive action to become enrolled. Third thing one observes is immobilisation. People do nothing. If I face you with a problem that's so complicated you don't know where to begin, this is rabbit-in-car headlight time. You do nothing. You just freeze. And it's impossible even if you're knowledgeable about pensions, to process information about large numbers of private pension funds. In Sweden, Swedish workers are supposed to choose one from 785 private pension funds. Um, if they make no choice, they are put into the default fund. 2005, of new entrants to the Swedish labour force, 90% went into the default fund. They just don't make choices. So the question is, why do people behave this way? 
And there are lessons here from behavioural economics, and I'm here drawing on the marvellous Lionel Robbins memorial lectures that David Labeson gave at LSE two years ago. Experimental evidence shows that people have a high discount rate in the short run, a much lower one in the long run. Imagine that as you came into the lecture theatre today, you signed up for your snack for next week's lecture. And if you did that in this experiment, two-thirds of you would have chosen fruit salad, one-third of you would have chosen chocolate. But as you come in, you can, there's fruit salad and chocolate out there for you to bring in today. <coughs> two-thirds of you choose chocolate. People are rational for the future, but not for the present. But when the future arrives, it's the present. So the short-term wins. So... I won't do a show of hands. There are those of you out there who know you should be losing weight, but now's a bad time to start. You really want to quit smoking, but exam pressures are such that you'll do it later. Um, so you intend to do it, but it doesn't happen. And there's clinical evidence of this. This is sort of economic theory meets hard neuroscience. There's two bits of the brain. The mesolimbic is the old bit, the animal bit, the impatient bit. Eat now, it may be my last meal. The prefrontal cortex is the newer part of the brain, the patient bit, the rational bit. This is rational economic man and woman. And life is a constant fight between the two bits. And clinical measurement um, under the scanner shows that. And these results call into question the simple model of long-term rationality. So what? What does this tell us? It tells us, it gives us lessons about models to avoid and lessons about how to design models. Models to avoid, the usefulness of the model of competition and rational consumer choice shouldn't be overstated. The argument that if you give people a tax break and that will give them an incentive to save more for old age works perfectly in the simple economic model, but it's not the way people behave. The other argument is people would make better choices if they had better financial education. And I'm all in favour of better financial education, but the problem is one that is inherently too complicated for most people. And I include myself in that. And finally, the argument is competition will bring down administrative charges. It doesn't. People don't move. Procrastination and inertia. What do you do to get it right? I think some very simple, powerful lessons. One, you use automatic enrolment. You say to people, you are automatically enrolled in the pension scheme. You keep choices simple. There is a bit of economic theory that says increasing the range of choice can never reduce welfare. That's true if people are perfectly informed and there are no transactions costs. Where people are badly informed, where there are costs of making decisions, that is false. <coughs> Giving people a small number of simple choices is a deliberate and welfare-enhancing design feature. But you can say that one of the options can be to let people run their own pension. We have Marks and Spencer suits, and we have Savile Row suits. My argument is, the argument from behavioural economics, most people want Marks and Spencer's pensions, but there's no reason to prevent those with the interest and the knowledge to have a Savile Row pension if that's what they want. So you keep choices simple, you design a good default option, 
which includes life cycle profiling, meaning people get automatically moved from equities into bonds as they age. Finally, you decouple fund administration from fund management. You have centralised administration of your details, your contributions, because that keeps administrative costs low. And then the actual investment decisions are done wholesale um, on a competitive basis. Which brings me to the US Thrift Savings Plan. It was initially voluntary for federal civil servants. It's now one of auto-enrollment. Workers choose one of five funds. They are simple funds. An equities fund, a global equities fund, a US government bonds fund, a corporate bonds fund, etc. So these are simple enough choices for workers to be able to make them. Centralised account administration, so the administrative costs are extraordinarily low, and wholesale fund management. So that simplifies the choice for workers, respecting their information constraints. It keeps administrative costs astonishingly low. And the new system of personal pensions in the UK is a um, similar sort of construct, very much for those, line, for those reasons. And again, is another tribute to the Pensions Commission. Let me move on swiftly to the last policy direction. Consumption smoothing learning from Sweden. Sweden has something called notional defined contribution pensions, NDC pensions. Those, very briefly, are like individual funded pensions, except they're run on a pay-as-you-go basis. So these are government pensions where the contributions of this year's workers pay this year's pensions. The government keeps a record of each individual's contributions, each year adds a notional interest rate to the accumulation. And then when the worker retires, the notional accumulation is converted into an annuity on an actuarial basis. So this looks like an individual funded account where you've got an exact relationship between lifetime contributions and the pension a person gets. But there isn't a fund. It's organised by government on a pay-as-you-go basis. Now, you can modify the pure case of actuarial benefits to include redistribution. For example, you can give pension credits for caring activities. All sorts of advantages. It's simple from the point of view of the worker. It has low administrative costs. It avoids stock market turbulence. Uh, it doesn't require the same institutional capacity to manage funded schemes um, that things like the thrift savings plan have. Saving may be the wrong policy. In China, they've got savings coming out of their ears. Policies to increase savings go the wrong way. Um, should a country go for notionally defined contributions or for funded accounts, there are solid economic principles for addressing that choice, which Peter and I discuss in the book. So, examples of notionally defined contributions... Sweden is the major example. Poland has such a system. So does Latvia. So that gives four policy directions for Europe. Non-contributory basic pensions, later and more flexible retirement, a thrift savings plan type of arrangement, and, sorry, or <coughs> notional defined contribution pensions. They can be put together in different ways. 
and in different proportions. Now, what about the rest of the world? I think I'm going to skip over this because I want to make sure that Adair gets a chance to say a few words before the world collapses yet again. So let me end with just a few concluding thoughts. Very few. Why does pension reform matter? Well, it matters enormously for the life chances of workers and their families, and one has only to look at one's family and listen to the news to hear that. It matters for national economic performance. If all of a sudden, or eventually as in Greece, you've got to spend 25% of GDP on state pensions, um, it's going to have horrible macroeconomic effects. On the other hand, if you get your pension arrangements right, they can increase savings, they can increase investment they can contribute to growth. And final point, it can matter not only within a country, but international. And this is, I'm overstating this example, but it does make the point that this can be a big-time issue. China has a very limited pension system, so it's not surprising that people in China save like crazy. Precautionary saving. The saving rate in China is between 40 and 50% of GDP. I mean, they are saving like crazy. Now, pension reform in China in 1998 introduced a World Bank model of individual funded accounts. So more saving going into workers' accounts. The working group of which Peter and I were members argued that that was the wrong model for China for now, and we went through the economic analytics of when funded pensions made sense, and none of them held for China. So we said individual accounts, fine, greatest part of a strategy. They don't have to be funded. They could be notional. And we recommended notional accounts. If China had gone for a good system of pay-as-you-go pensions earlier, say in the mid-1990s, then there would be less precautionary saving in China today, and the country might be better placed today to make a larger contribution to global reflation. Why is China spending so little? Answer, there is very little old-age security. So pension reform matters not just for reasons of social policy. It's a fundamentally important part of individual life chances, but also of a country's national economic performance and of countries' plural, global uh, economic performance. So important issues. Economics has important things to say. Let me leave it there. Thank you very much. Nick, many thanks. Um, we're about to witness a great juggling act. How can you deal with both pensions and the Chancellor at the same time? Good. Thank you uh, very much, Nick. Um, I, I am in an embarrassing situation that I may still get a phone call, which I simply cannot avoid uh, taking, uh, which I was meant to get at five past seven and keeps on getting delayed. Uh, some of you, you will appreciate that in my role as chairman of the FSA, this is what my life is like uh, at the moment and has been it since September the uh, 20th when I appear to have boarded a roller coaster which simply goes uh, in a different direction each day. But let me try and make some comments in relation to uh, Nick's lecture, which uh, I have heard most of sitting at the back uh, and which I have uh, seen the other charts of and with which I 
very fundamentally uh, agree, as indeed I think Nick has made plain that he agrees uh, with a great deal which was in the Pension Commission. I want to just highlight a number of points. First of all, there is not a crisis of ageing. Insofar as there is a demographic crisis in the world, I think it is still too rapid population growth in continents like Africa. And I think the extent to which we talk about a crisis of ageing in the rich developed world is a dangerous process which can divert us from that fundamental economic uh, uh, fact. There are many countries in the world which still do face a demographic crisis. Countries like Niger, which had a population of 2 million in 1950, has a population of something like 12 million today, and at present rate is going to have a population of 50 million by 2050 in a semi-arid country facing climate change. That is a crisis. What we face in the rich developed world is not a crisis, it is a manageable set of problems to which we have to adjust with sensible policy. And if we turn it into a crisis, it will be bizarre, because at the core of it, as Nick has said, is a wonderful thing that people are living longer, and that as best we can tell, this is not just more years of, as it were, decrepit, close-to-death old age, it is more years of healthy old age. Not only are people living longer, but the average healthiness, both physical and mental, of a 65 or 67-year-old or 68-year-old is improving. That's fact number one, and Nick has made that absolutely plain. <coughs> Therefore, one of the most fundamental things that we have to do in pension policy is to increase average retirement ages, though we can do that in a flexible fashion that allows people to make their own specific choices. We don't have to be mechanistic, but we have to accept that it's highly likely that the average will go up. And Nick has quite rightly talked about the extraordinary process, extent to which this was a taboo subject uh, till only two or three years ago. And it is intriguing that it is still surprisingly taboo in some other countries. There are some European countries, some of them, as Nick has said, are moving. Others, that still don't talk about the retirement age. And yet it is bizarre. Given what is happening to retirement, if you stick, as some continental countries do, to the idea that, uh, for instance, retirement ages might even stay at 60, and for women in particular... In a few years' time, this is, the concept will be that women will work, uh, say, post-graduation for 35 years, and then they'll be retired for 35 years. I mean, completely uh, bizarre concept that we've just got to grip. We have to increase retirement ages. And I have to say that if I regret anything now about what we said in the Pension Commission, I think we should almost have been more radical on the retirement age. I think, if anything, we should be increasing it faster. Given what we proposed that we should increase to 68 by 2045, or what the government decided to do on the basis of our report, 68 by 2045, people will have then more years in retirement than they have now, and roughly the same proportion of their adult life spent in retirement. So we have got to grip this issue, and any idea that we should keep retirement ages stable and try and save our way out of this problem... Yes. Yeah by people simply accumulating more and more savings to deal with a longer and longer period of retirement is complete madness. 
and it is an intolerable burden on the working population because either you're going to have to tax them more and more to pay for a pay-as-you-go system which covers more years of life or they're going to have to save more out of their existing a, uh, income to support more and more years of retirement. And either is not an attractive thing. It is simply not an attractive thing for us to be devoting more and more of our prime years of life to very heavy levels of income sacrifice in order to support an endlessly increasing uh, rate of retirement. So we've really just got to be uh, radical about that and to make sure that we make clear and sensible decisions. Next point that I very much agree with Nick on is private pensions are not a panacea. There is a role for private pensions alongside state pay-as-you-go pensions, and there are complicated things to do with the way that they can enable people for whom it is appropriate to make a different set of asset choices, not to be making bond or bond-like choices, to be making equity risk choices with higher return and higher risk. That is appropriate uh, for some people. It also enables people beyond a base load of pension provision to express their own choices. Some people may want to save more uh, for greater income in retirement, some less. And uh, to that extent, personal preference is a good thing. But it's not a panacea in this sense that any system of pensions involves a transfer of real resources from the working population to the retired population. And you don't get round that by moving to a system of private pensions, and it's therefore not a panacea. And by the way, you could do private pensions in a way which would make no sense whatsoever. There's an interesting debate about what is the perfect asset that people might want to invest a private pension in. And it's a very interesting discussion that the perfect asset might be a GDP bond. It would be a bond, the value of which increased with either total GDP or more likely per capita GDP. Because you could invest in it, and you would know that what you were buying was a set of units of consumption for 30 or 40 years hence, which would maintain your relative position in the earnings distribution because it was linked to GDP per capita. And we know from all the analysis of happiness that what people worry about really is what is their relative position. They want to know that they're roughly able to defend their, uh, their status within the earnings distribution. But suppose everybody saved privately and they all invested in these wonderful GDP bonds which the government had been able to create. You'd have a pay-as-you-go system by any other name. Because what a well-run pay-as-you-go system is, is a sort of GDP bond on the future. A bond which, through the mechanisms of notional defined contribution, can be adjusted uh, to deal with the retirement age, but is essentially a way of saying, I put money aside today, either in private savings or taxation, and I gain a set of rights for the future, a set of rights which are linked uh, to average earnings. So private pensions are not a panacea, and in some circumstances, uh, you may find that you do private pensions, and all you've gone round is go round in a circle and do a more fancy version as a pay-as-you-go. And if you do that, you'll almost certainly destroy value because the costs will be higher. Running a well-run pay-as-you-go system costs something like 0.1%, 0.1, a tenth of a percent, of the notional value of the asset that you have in the future. It is almost impossible to get any funded system quite as low as 0.1%, and most funded pension systems 
Uh, certainly pensions that you can go out and buy from the private market will cost you 1 or 1.25 or 1.5%. And that makes an enormous amount of difference to how much you've got. So if we are to have, and it makes sense to have, a base load of pension provision which is essentially of the form of a GDP bond, a thing which gives you a right equal to average earnings, it is completely sensible that that bit of the system is organised as a low-cost pay-as-you-go system. Now, why is it that the costs so are high, so high on this private system. Why is it that customer information and competition doesn't drive the cost down uh, to a low level? Well, it's something which is exercising me in what I call my day job quite a lot at the moment. It is the imperfections of markets. And if... People are not aware after the last 18 months that markets have a certain set of imperfections. I don't think they've been paying much uh, attention. Uh, we know that markets can be very powerful things. Um, you know, the idea that you should ever run a, na- a nation's restaurant system other than by market competition between private restaurant providers uh, is, is a crazy idea. And anybody who went to a restaurant behind the Iron <laughs> Curtain before it fell knows what a completely bonkers idea it is. But that doesn't mean that all markets work uh, equally well. We know that in the private pension market, certainly if you are dealing with relatively small pensions with relatively lower income people, however hard the industry tries, it's just almost impossible to get the costs of provision down to the pay-as-you-go system. So we shouldn't do it. Or, if we're going to do it funded, we have to find a way of achieving the economies of scale which are achieved by large occupational pension schemes, and that's what we try and do with the new personal accounts uh, which are being proposed by the government and a, which the Pension Commission proposed. You, the Government Act, as a bulk buyer of pensions, it achieves yes. a, uh, the economies of scale in administration and bulk buying economies uh, in fund management. But there are, as Nick says, some even deeper problems about just relying on markets for pensions, and they are rooted in this issue of real economic behaviour behavioural economics, economics which actually tries to work out how people really make decisions rather than starting with that wonderful proposition at the beginning of neoclassical textbooks, let me assume a a rational person who makes a rational decision. And I really do think that one of the most exciting things that's happened in the economics over the last 10 years or so is that through its link with psychology and neuroscience, we are increasingly able to really understand how people really make decisions rather than simply making uh, those assumptions. And I want to end simply by saying that is incredibly important as it relates to pensions issues and the, the, uh, uh, the, the arguments for uh, auto-enrolment and using the inertia effects of uh, behavioural economics to influence behaviour. It is also something which it turns out has uh, enormous implications for how liquid financial markets work. Uh, Danny Kahneman, who is one of the great leaders of behavioural economics, I had not met before. I had the opportunity to meet him uh, two weeks ago. And he gave a lovely little talk about how people 
really think about what they think is going to happen to the market prices for something in the future. And the core of it is this distinction between the Mesolimbic, the old part of the brain, which is still there from our evolved past as a, uh, a, a, as, as a, a more basic animal, and which has within it a set of behavioural responses which are completely sensible in the past, but which are actually not terribly helpful if you're trying to trade CDO squareds today. Now, I strongly advise you not to trade CDO squareds. <laughs> and indeed, one of, the gr- one of the few good things about the recent crash is that a smaller proportion of the intellectual talent, uh, which comes out of places like the LSE, is going to go off and do unnecessary things like designing and trading CDO squareds, and hopefully more are going to do helpful things. But the point that Danny Kahneman makes is, one of the things that we learn we learned, as it were, back on the savannah when we were trying to make sure we weren't eaten by lions, is that when you observe that something has happened four times in a row, assuming that it will happen, if A happens, B will happen, once you've seen that four times in a row, assuming that if A happens, B will happen on the fifth time, that it will occur, is a very good decision rule. And it's a decision rule deeply embedded into us. If it happened that way on Tuesday, if it happened that way on Wednesday, if it happened that way on Thursday, Friday, it'll happen that way when the markets open on Monday. And therefore, the tendency with which we simply say, if the market price has gone up, it's going to go up further, is actually deeply embedded within us. And that actually is a terribly important insight about how liquid markets operate. It is where from things like herd instincts come. They also come from uh, something which is compatible with the rational economic theory, which if there are certain categories of incentives, it can make sense for even those people who are switching on uh, the prefrontal cortex and who realise that it is a herd, those people can say, ah, yes, what I need to do is run with the herd and speculate with the herd as long as I can just sense one day before the herd uh, when this is coming to the end. So you can have people who are completely rational players making money out of it and making it even more of a herd, but Kahneman's point is actually there's part of it is in this distinction between the brain. Part of what goes on in liquid-traded markets is this distinction uh, between these two different bits of the brain and the way that we really operate. It's incredibly important, as we discovered in the Pension Commission, in relation to uh, the uh, way that you encourage people uh, to save, but it has a far wider implication, and I think it is really one of the most important and exciting bits of economics. And it presumably works the other way around too. Uh, on, the way da- down. on the way down, it is equally reinforcing with somewhat disastrous effects. Yeah. There are many thanks indeed. We have about a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes. quarter of an hour, 20 minutes for your questions. So who would like to begin? Let's start down there. There is a microphone on the way, I think. Yeah, Bernard. Ca- Hello. Yep. Yeah, Bernard Casey from Warwick University. Um, I want to pick up one of um, Nicholas's points about the later retirement age, and he predicates 
Um, the acceptability of a later retirement age on increased life expectancy. Um, what this does not say anything about, it says something about mortality, but it says very little about morbidity. And what I'm interested in is um, morbidity in later working life, of which there are a number of indicators often associated with things which we call lifestyle-related illness. I also pick up on the point which he makes in relation to that, that, okay, it is also acceptable to increase retirement age because much work or most work is less physically demanding than it used to be. That is maybe, but also most work might be more mentally demanding and more stressful than it used to be. And one of the things that we actually see, whether we look at reasons for absence or reasons why people are being given invalidity benefits, is, okay, the classic things associated with heavy work are disappearing, but the things that are associated with stressful work are increasing. There's some more, and we'll take two or three together. Uh, Hello, my name's uh, Derek Pike. I'd uh, like to put in a a little plug for the actuarial profession, of which I'm a a member. And uh, I know Professor Barr mentioned us in slide 39, but uh, I really think that we have uh, a lot uh, more to to help inform the um, policy uh, decisions and pensions. Um, you know, to take one example, the, the government actually at the time was uh, advocating a, a link between lo- an automatic link between longevity and state pension age. You know, even before the um, Lord Turner's Pension Commission. Um, and uh, to to take up on one point made by the previous speaker, the uh, the, the actual profession has uh, done some research on. Um, yeah, um, the, the healthy retirement, not just purely on uh, the, the age of uh, retirement. And um, one, uh, in, in particular, since um, uh, Professor uh, Barr's um, put in a plug for uh, his book, uh, I'd like to put in a, a, a plug for uh, a book that the, the actuarial profession published last month called uh, 100 Years of State Pension, yeah. Learning from the Past, because um, um, you know, in the UK we really have uh, tried uh, a lot of different pension policies over the last hundred years, and uh, looking at the history, there's a lot we can learn about the uh, you know the practical implementations of uh, uh, of uh, different uh, possible pension policies, and um, uh, the, the the one generalisation. I suggest can be made uh, is that um, uh, there are uh, two objectives um, that politicians have been influenced by uh, in the last hundred years. One is that um, uh, uh, the the idea of fairness is um, involved with uh, redistribution um, from each ill according to his means to each according to his needs which is one of um, Professor Barr's four objectives. But the, uh, the other concept of fairness is um, the, the idea that each individual should have a, a fair return on the, uh, the contributions that he's made. And uh, I think we have to get um, 
uh, have to resolve or at least um, bring out more into the open that, that debate. My name's Bryn Davis. Um, I, I just wanted to ask a question of Professor Barr in relation to the policy objective of, uh, of avoiding elderly poverty. Were you making a distinction between, between means testing and affluence testing? Uh, and if you were, I was a bit surprised that what happens in Australia was put into the affluence testing definition rather than the means testing. Right, thank you for those. Um, Bernard's point, first of all. Um, Of course it's not just declining mortality, it's also the issue of what happens to morbidity, illness, ill health of other sorts. Those who know the epidemiological data better than I do, I gather there's something of a punch-up whether all of the increase in life expectancy is healthy increase or whether the unhealthy period at the end is getting larger. I'm not going to take a view on that, but I think it is clear that the healthy period is getting longer, though maybe not all of the increase is healthy. So people aged 65 today, on average, are more active and healthier than they were 100 years ago. I accept the point that less physical work, possibly more mental work, but again, same answer. I I like to think that 65-year-olds today, on average, are mentally as well as physically more capable than they were 100 years ago. I think the points about morbidity are entirely valid, but they don't contradict the fundamental policy drive, I would say, to later retirement and more flexible retirement. One of the reasons for more flexible retirement is individual preferences, but another is also individual constraints if people do have some health problems, they might not be able to work full-time and it should be easy for them to work part-time. Actuarial profession, important. Yes, absolutely important. I think one of the problems is that people have tied actuarial calculations one-to-one with individual funded accounts, and I think that's entirely unhelpful. I've been sceptical Uh, about individual funded accounts uh, for the reasons that I've talked about, but actuarial calculations would be vital for a notional defined contribution scheme. They are vital if one wants to project the financial viability in the long term of state pension schemes. So um, I think that um, actuaries have an enormously important task. A hundred years of the state pension is a book that I haven't had time to read yet. It looks mouth-watering. My worry about reading it is I think the story of British pensions is a depressing one, particularly in the later years. I think we've made every mistake in the book over the last 25 years by making too many changes in the state pension and making it too complicated If any of you understand the British pension system in detail, I'm about to say 
I suspect Bernard does, and I don't want to be rude, but I think anyone who understands it has wasted an important part of their life. <laughs> I, I have made a point of not understanding it, and if any of you can find the link and send it to me, I'd be very grateful. This was the Today programme on the day that Alistair Darling announced the reform that brought in the state second pension. And he was being interviewed by John Humphreys, who, as you know, is an absolute rottweiler of an interview with a razor-sharp mind. And the two of them more or less ended up on the carpet in the studio hugging each other in tears because it was quite clear neither of them had a clue what was going on. I mean, as an exercise in an interview between two bright, intelligent people who totally failed to understand what was going on, it's, it's awesome, and I'd love to hear it again. Um, fairness, multiple definitions. Absolutely. One definition of fairness is you should be protected from poverty. Another is you should get a pension that's related to the contributions you've put in. So you could say a combination of a tax-financed, basic pension for everybody deals with poverty relief plus let's say a notional defined contribution pension where what you get is actuarially related to your contributions that hits both definitions of fairness um, question about means testing um, a means test says if the poverty line's 100 the moment your income crosses 100, for every pound you earn over 100, you'll lose 50 pence of pension or even a pound of pension. A means test means that only the poor would get the pension. An affluence test says if the poverty line's 100 and average earnings are 400, then anyone with earnings below 500 or 600 will get the full pension. And the income test, if you like, that's the arrangement that starts to claw it back only cuts in for people who are significantly above average earnings. Hence my point about Canada that 98% of Canadians get at least some of their universal pension. It's only the 2% of the richest who get none of it. So it's technically just a question of where the, cut, where, where the taper starts. And if you're telling me that it's lower in Australia than I think it is... My, my first ever teacher of economics, Dick, Dick, Dick Lipsy, used to say, never argue about facts. If it's lower than I think, then maybe it's somewhere between an income test and an affluence test. Great. Thanks very much. We've time for two or three more. Uh, one there, and then one there, and then one there. Good evening. My name is Elias Kondoudis. I am from Greece and I'm a student in MSc in International Health Policy. Clearly, as you made it, uh, I have no hopes for my country's uh, future <laughs> in uh, pension system. So my point is, uh, what would you would suggest if a person has uh, such a bad uh, pension system, what would be the best alternative? And... Uh, would that be a private uh, pension system? And uh, what, uh, how you see the future in Greece regarding the pension system? Thank you very much. Yeah, small challenge, just redesign it in the back of an envelope right now. Um, uh, I want to ask, uh, my name's Anne Corbett. I want to ask a political question too. But my question's about the politics of portability. Um, Nick's mentioned the case of a, a European Institute colleague 
with uh, jobs in four <coughs> countries, but actually uh, put, uh, encouragement to mobility um, is a big policy drive of the European Union. It's a particularly big thing for higher education. Um, uh, what I'd like to know is uh, how do you move from where we are now to where we might be? Hi, uh, um, Naomi Christie from Café Babel, um, online European magazine. Uh, yeah, my question is quite basic. Um, uh, I, I was just wondering, social, in terms of social class, poor people tend to die younger. So if there's a universal policy making retirement age 70, but poor people are still dying at 60, um, what, what can you do to adjust for that? Okay, uh, what to do about Greece? Um, I think one of the definitions of intelligence is to recognise difficult problems and avoid them, and I became an academic, not a politician, partly, I hope, for that reason. Um, what does one do in Greece? There are obviously no easy answers. It's one of these many cases where the economics is easy. I mean, I've set out four perfectly sensible policies here. It's the politics that's difficult. Um, I remember at a World Bank conference for politicians from Central and Eastern Europe right after the collapse of communism, um, people were saying, you need to balance your budget, you need to get inflation under control. And every single one of the politicians said, but you don't understand the problems in my country. There's rising poverty, there's rising unemployment, there's political pressures to spend more. And finally, there was a young woman from the OECD who lost her rag and said to these ministers, all right then, she said, you have your hyperinflation, then you'll have the political momentum for proper reform. And it may be that one needs a crisis, just as we've got a financial crisis that will, uh, I profoundly hope, create the political momentum for better financial market regulation than we've had. Um, I think it's not going to happen until the political will's there. If it's possible to get the political will without a crisis, that's great, but I can't see how to do that. Would private pensions be an answer? No, I don't think they would. Um, <clears throat> I mean, for a start, how would you get people to save? And how would you get people to save the, the people who need to save, sort of lower and middle-income people? How would you get them to save? So I'm afraid... There isn't an easy answer. I wish there were. If I think of one, I'll tell you. Um, the politics of portability, big policy drive, how do you do it? Well, this again is absolutely the right question. I have a graduate course on the economics of European social policy, and some of the questions I put on it are questions that it would be nice to have the answer to. And I hope that by giving successive waves of young razor-sharp minds a chance to crack open these problems, they might come up with an answer. This is one of the questions, and there is yet to be an answer, because the problem is that each country is deeply wedded to its pension system, and there are good reasons why it's fine for different countries to have different pension systems, but they're incompatible. And how you can have portability between countries like Britain with contributory systems and the Netherlands with non-contributory systems. I don't see how that can work unless you change the systems. And the only idea that I've heard is, supposing you have a private pension that 
is designed to operate across all European countries. It could be defined contribution. It could be a sort of occupational scheme that operates across all European countries. So it may be that one could attack this through private pensions. I worry that moving all state schemes to notional defined contribution pensions, though it would do the trick, is going to be politically very difficult. And as for the basic state pension, I just, I just see it, it, it again... The economics, is, <clears throat> the economics is straightforward. You just get all the governments to look at the four elements I've talked about and reach agreement about which ones they would implement in their countries. And, um, you know, this is intellectually fine and dandy. Policy design is the easy bit. It's implementation that's hard and political implementation, arguably the hardest of them all. Uh, Naomi's point, poor people live less long on average than richer people. Therefore, if you raise the retirement age... That change per se is regressive. That's absolutely right. It's one of the more troubling features of raising retirement age. Some responses. First of all, the fact that it's regressive can't immobilise policy. We can't get into the situation that Adair was talking about so eloquently where you say retirement age is 65 forever and people have to save or contribute more and more and more because people's retirements are getting longer and longer. It's a problem, but you can't let it immobilise policy. That's my First response. Second response, there are reasons why poorer people have shorter lives and social policy should be addressing those. Now, that's not part of pensions policy and it's not part of short-run policy, but inequality in life expectancy is itself a major social policy problem that ought to be addressed in its own right. What you can do, third, in terms of pensions is if you have a pensions formula that's redistributive from richer to poorer, that's at least a partial offset. So in the United States, their state pension has a redistributive tilt built into it so that the people, people on, with a lower earnings record get more pension per dollar of contributions than richer people. That's not a complete offset, but at least it's a partial offset. And if one raised retirement age, one might think about what policies one could introduce, at least in the short run, to strengthen that redistributive tilt. Can I add a comment? Um, reforming Greece or anywhere else. Um, one lesson you might learn from here is the pension commission process that we had, which I think, with a small p, was a very, yes. very clever piece of politics yes. because there was a perception there was a problem and the commission was set up. Now, normally what commissions do is they go away, beaver away and report... That's yes. an outcry about the recommendations. Yes. 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 What was so clever about this was there was an initial report which kind of set out the problem and said there is a problem and then said the solution has to be one of these three things, there is no other solution, without saying which proportion of them they would choose. So by the time they came up with the recommendations, there was a sort of fertile ground on which to build in the sense that it was either going to be higher taxes, more saving, poorer pensioners, work longer. There's no way out of it except for those four. And I think the you know, small p politics in that was a very, very clever way of sort of sowing the ground before you came up with the recommendations. I think it's a neat approach. I mean, it said, these are the four policies. Yeah. Think about them. They also said, we don't think anyone on its own can do yeah. the trick. Exactly, yeah. You know, and Adair's great line, anyone who, who comes up with a solution that doesn't tell you which of these three tools is being used is a charlatan. You know, it's got to be one of these things. Yeah. I think it was very neat. A couple more? Fine by me. 
one or two. Last one or two. Yes. Um, it, it goes back to this problem of implementation. I mean, as a good economist, what you do is set out a menu, and yet people don't come to the restaurant with uh, you know, a complete open mind about which bit of the menu they're going to eat. They come with uh, 20, 50 years of history, all sorts of obligations to previous generations that are built into the pension system. So I could say, well, that's just a typical economist flag we've had here, you know, which is to give to one set of people who are not going to make a set of choices a set of rational options which they're not going to take. Thank you very much, Nick. You've got us nowhere. <laughs> it's the last question. <laughs> Thank you, Howard. Um, right. I mean, I think my response to that would be of course we know that political implementation is important, but unless you give politicians sensible options as opposed to silly options, I mean, if you give them silly options, then they're almost bound to make silly choices. If you give them sensible options and say, this is the menu that makes sense, these are the things you ought to be thinking about, and starting to create, as the Pensions Commission did, a longer-term debate... I mean, raising pensionable age and having more institutions that allow more flexible retirement is something that could be accommodated in any pension system. <coughs> Bringing in a sensible regime for a thrift savings plan type arrangement on top of or alongside anything you've already got, essentially what the Pensions Commission is recommending for here. Those are things that you could start thinking about doing that would not drive a coach and horses through people's historical expectations, um, accumulated rights, etc. I agree that bringing in something like notional defined contribution pensions in place of a pay-as-you-go system with a greater redistributive tilt, that's got political problems to it. So that may not be feasible in the short run. But I think, so, one, give politicians sensible options to protect them from silly options. Secondly, start a long-run debate going about what those sensible options are. And thirdly, at least two of the ones that I'm talking about are compatible with existing arrangements. I think we better one. Do you want to come back on that? No. Take one more at the back and then we'll... Last, this will be the last one, I fear. Thank you. Uh, my name's Tim Nolan, just a member of the public. Um, you've put out a very good um, case and, as you say, a, a clear set of sensible choices for politicians to make uh, in what's a potentially political minefield. And you've also pointed again to the success of the Pensions Commission um, methodology for introducing it to the public. Um, in a sort of parallel way... Um, the general sort of social benefit system in terms of unemployment benefit and so on and so forth is it equally, if not more, contentious. Um, do you think the same methodology of suggesting, academics suggesting a sensible set of policies and introducing some sort of commission may also be applicable to the broader social benefit system? And, uh, and to your knowledge, has it happened anywhere in the world? Many years ago, I was led astray by my colleague and friend Ian Crawford in, and got involved in the higher education debate. 
And I remember saying to Ian in the late 1980s, when I was a lot more, a lot more naive than I am now, I said to him, we've got to win. I said, we've got the argument so right. And he gave me a cold stare and said, what the hell does that have to do with it? <laughs> um, I'm very conscious that politics and political implementation is a very different skill set from that which I have. I've therefore always argued that successful reform needs three sets of skills simultaneously. One, strategic policy design, the sort of thing that academics like me do, which is in some ways the easy bit. Secondly, implementation, political implementation and technical implementation. So those are three very different skill sets very few people are deeply versed in even two of those. So typically you need a team of people. When I was asked to advise the Hungarian government on the design of their student loans scheme, there was me doing strategic policy design, there was Ian Crawford as the political hard man, and there was the UK student loans company on the technical side. And I think if you don't have the, the policy, strategic policy design skills, then you get into the sort of mess that... Um, the British pension system uh, was in and which the pensions commission from which the pensions commission had to rescue them um, but if you only have academics like me then policy ain't going to happen you need all three fantastic no switch it off <laughs> <laughs> really, thank you okay sorry uh, at this point we wind up